We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. And if you count, you'll realize that it's actually longer than 40 days. The reason is, is that you don't count Sunday. Lent is a time of penance and preparation for Easter. But the church counts Sundays, every Sunday is a mini Easter, a day we celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So Lent always starts 40 days, not counting Sundays, before Easter. Easter is a movable feast. Holidays like Christmas are based on the sun, on the solar calendar. So they're a fixed day every year, December 25th. But Easter is based on the lunar calendar. And that's why it moves around every year. And so this year, Lent began last Wednesday. Just a few days ago, that was Ash Wednesday. And it goes all the way through to Easter, which is April the 4th this year. Now, Lent is this season where the church calls all Christians to a long, slow preparation for Easter. A long and slow and methodical and sustained preparation for the very center of the Christian life. You see, for Christians, Easter is not like the 4th of July where we remember this past event. For Christians, Easter is the center, the living, ever-present center of the Christian life. Not a day where we merely remember, but it is a day where we encounter afresh the living and resurrected Christ. Now, it's so important and it's so central to the Christian life that the church, in great wisdom, calls all Christians to 40 days of preparation. 40 days of preparation with all of these strange rituals and rules and customs. Weird stuff. I mean, if if you're a part part of the Christian world that practices Lent, on Wednesday, they smeared ashes on your forehead. This is not a normal kind of thing. And if you had done it in the middle of the day, you then go back to work or you go back to your regular thing. And it's clear, much more clear than having a fish on the back of your car. It's clear that you operate off a totally different game plan than this world we live in. Lent, it has these rituals. We, if you'll notice, the music is more somber. It's got a more serious edge. This song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, was originally written by this band called Petra. And they did it very different than Robert did it. But Robert led us in a Lenten version, this serious, somber. And when you stay with us for the next seven weeks as we go through this time, you'll see that there are all of these changes Because we're entering into Lent, a serious preparation for Easter. A little bit later in the service, we're going to all stand and Allison is going to read out the Ten Commandments to us. And after each commandment, we'll say, Lord, have mercy. And we'll do this all through Lent because it takes this long, slow experience of getting our hearts into the place where we can receive Christ and his resurrection anew. Now, what I want to point out to you is that all of these strange rituals and rules and these customs, 
These are the result of a very long and extremely complex history. But let me just kind of sum it up in a couple of sentences to lay a foundation that we can move on from here. Within a hundred years of Christ's resurrection, Christianity had already spread to many different cultures. Okay? So we're talking the second century A.D., Christ's first century Within the second century A.D., we can, we've got historical documents that throughout the cultures where Christianity had spread, already they had committed themselves to a tradition of a, of a period of time where they prepared for Easter. Now, this continued to evolve historically, and by the fourth and fifth centuries, so three to four hundred years later, Christianity had just exploded around the world. And we find in the historical records, there's a deep consistency. No matter what culture you go into, that they are practicing 40 days of these strange rituals and customs of preparation for Easter. Now, the reason I say all of that is because if you're like me and you come out of a part of the Christian world that feels like ritual automatically equals dead ritual, then you look with suspicion at these kinds of things. But what I want to say to you is that over a long period of time, through lots of different cultures, the Holy Spirit gave God's wisdom to the church and said, you need help getting ready for Easter. And the rituals that we go through as a church and some practices I'm going to talk about tonight, they are tried and true. And we can trust them Because America didn't invent them, and they've stood the test of time, and they've translated across cultures. That's a huge kind of oversimplification of what, like I said, was this very complex process of historical development. But but the main thing I want you to see as we move through tonight is that this is the fruit of the spirits leading the church for lots of centuries to learn how to more fully engage the spiritual life. Now, one of the customs is that the first Sunday of Lent always focuses in on the temptation of Christ. And the reason for that is that the best way to look at Lent is through the prism. You know what a prism does when light hits it, right? It is through the prism of the temptation. If you would look at this season we're about to go into through the passage that that Alan Causey read to us, then you'll see what we're about to engage in as a group, the season of Lent, in a very fresh and powerful way. Now, to do that, I need to divide tonight's message into two parts. For the first part of the message, I'm going to point out how the temptation reveals Jesus to us. Look, there are lots of ways you can teach the three temptations of Christ, You can talk about how it's a brilliant insight into the psychology of temptation, right? Here's how Jesus was, here's how you're tempted, and here's how to resist. And that's very good, and I'm sure there'll be a place where where I do that, um, where I teach from that passage on how to resist Satan. But the most fundamental thing going on in that passage is not a psychology of resisting temptation. It's that Christ is being revealed to us as a very particular being. And that's, that's the most important part of the temptation when it comes to you and I understanding what Lynn is about. It's who Jesus is as he comes to us 
through this passage. So that'll be the first part of the message. In the second part of the message, I'm going to build on that and point out the very practical tools that the church has developed out of the temptation story of Christ to helping us prepare for Easter. First of all, the temptation of Jesus shows us that Jesus is the new Adam. Okay? Think about it this way. If you've read the Bible very much, you might be aware that the the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, begins with Adam being tempted to break his fast. What is fasting? It's when you abstain from something. God had told Adam to abstain from the fruit of the tree. And Satan comes along and says, that's pleasing to the eye. It's good. It's okay. It's food. And Adam gave in to the temptation and broke his fast. The beginning of the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, we find Jesus fasting and Satan coming to him and tempting him to break his fast. Now, that's an intentional parallel. But this time, Jesus, the new Adam, overcomes the temptation. The result of Adam's giving in to the temptation is that he's kicked out of paradise into the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness where humanity has been kicked. He faces the same temptation and it leads him back into paradise. The Bible begins in a garden with a tree and it ends in a city with a garden and a tree. In other words, Luke, who's describing the scene, is trying to get you... You've got to learn, if you're a Christian, to read Scripture as one story, not a bunch of discrete little stories. He's trying to force you to see that Jesus is the new Adam. He is recovering what Adam lost. Now, we don't have time to go into all the parallels that Luke points out in his account of the temptation of Jesus. But let me just point out a couple more. Satan, in both cases, comes to hungry men. And he says to them, eat. Because your hunger is proof that you depend on food. And that you need food to live. And the first Adam believed this. And the second Adam rejected this. And what did he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, Jesus is saying this is a cosmic lie. It is the lie that led to the downfall of the whole human race. Humanity does not depend on stuff. It depends on God. We have our life deeply rooted, so deeply rooted in God that I can say no to my hunger pains and I can be sustained by God if that's what he's calling me to do. Jesus refused this lie. Jesus has come to repair the damage inflicted on all of us and on this whole universe by by the first Adam breaking the first fast. And Jesus comes to restore the life and the paradise that that first sin robbed from us. Now, that's the first thing we see about 
who Jesus is as he's revealed. You see, you could talk about the temptation of Jesus as Jesus is this morally upstanding person. And all of that's true and good. You could talk about it as Jesus with the ability to resist temptation. And all of that's true and good. But much more foundational is that Jesus is doing a very particular thing that is unique. And it is not just being very moral. He is reversing the curse that Adam brought into this world. He is the new Adam. Now, the second thing we see in the temptation account, when we look at it to say, who is Jesus, is that Jesus fulfills the role Israel was meant to play. Look at it this way. The passage that Kate read to us, okay? It's, it's the fifth book of the Bible, it's the book of Deuteronomy. Israel is in the wilderness, and she is tempted through her hunger, to believe that she lives by bread alone. God allowed Israel, very straight out of what she said, allowed Israel to go hungry so that she would learn man does not live by bread alone. This was Deuteronomy chapter 8 that Kate read. Secondly, Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first passage she read, is instructed to worship the one and only God and, and to not follow any other God. Thirdly, Israel was commanded in Deuteronomy 6 to not put God to the test. In each case, in the wilderness, Israel failed. On all three of those counts, these are the exact three temptations Jesus faced. Why? Because Luke, the author of this book, is drawing attention deliberately to the fact that Jesus is fulfilling Israel's vocation. Israel's job was to be faithful to God so that she could show the world who God was. And Jesus, and she fails miserably at that, and Jesus comes along and he fulfills that. He's in the wilderness 40 days, symbolic of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And he proves faithfulness to God on all three counts that Israel failed on. He succeeds where Israel failed. Temptation number one, physical needs and wants are important. But Jesus says loyalty to God is more important even than physical hunger. Jesus refused to abandon dependence on God even in the face of hunger. Temptation two, Jesus is the world's true Lord. But the path to that it's through humble service, not a prideful seeking after status or power. The third temptation. Trusting God never leads to demanding God proves his faithfulness by giving you some gimmick or something that you really want. That's putting God to the test. On all three of these counts, the quote the, when Jesus responds to Satan's temptation he responds using the exact verses God used to rebuke Israel for failing on those counts. Why is Jesus doing that? He's saying, I am the fulfillment of Israel's call in this world. So Jesus is the new Adam and he's the fulfillment of Israel's vocation, which is what? To lead the world back to God. Now, what does this mean? It means that Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and get this. In that moment, something really happened. 
I spent some time this week reading what the preachers of the first five centuries of Christianity, how they interpreted this, and they always went there. They always said, this is the significant beginning of the turning point for creation. It is in this moment where the long, slow decline that Adam's original sin set into motion, it is in this moment where it bottoms out and something begins to change. Finally, a human has showed up who is doing the right thing. Finally, Israel is being fulfilled. History has actually reached a turning point in the wilderness in Jesus. That is a very different way of talking about Jesus than talking about him as a moral example or as died to forgive you of your sins so that when you die, you get to go be in heaven. See, that is saying that in the wilderness, reality began to change. Not just some personal reality for Jesus and God. Not just a reality for you when you... But reality itself. We would say in philosophy, an ontological change occurred in the fabric of the universe. Something really happened to reality in that moment. Here's why that matters for Lent. That's true. That's reality. But we constantly forget it. We constantly lose track of this. In the rush of our daily life, we live as if Christ didn't really change things. We, we live as if his temptation for us and his dying and rising from the dead, his life in ministry has no change on reality. Simply put, we forget Jesus. We are so busy and so immersed in our daily preoccupations. We fail Christ. We forget Christ. We sin and suddenly we live as if the reality of what Christ has really done to history and time and the fabric of the universe no longer really happened. But instead it's a theory and wishful thinking that we'll get to enjoy when we die and float off into space. Now here's the deal. The season of Lent is the season we're called to stop forgetting that reality. Lent helps us to recover the vision and taste of the new life Christ really did kick off. He really did inaugurate the life we so easily forget and betray. So Lent is this seven-week-long, slow, and sustained transition that you and I go through from the old life, living as if the kingdom has not come, to the new life. Now that's the goal of Lent. The goal is to arrive at Easter ready to live as Easter people. As if the resurrection has occurred and Christ has changed things. And if you will take Lent seriously, if you will take Lent at the deepest possible level, you will begin to practice the rituals and customs of Lent, then you will experience not a theoretical impact, but a real impact on who you are. In other words, the danger with Lent is to let it be symbolic, to just symbolically receive the imposition of ashes, to symbolically give something up. You know, what are you doing for Lent? I'm giving this up. You know, what are you... 
What I'm saying is that it can become more than symbolic. You can actually practice the spiritual disciplines of Lent in such a slow and consistent and persistent and long way that it has a real impact on your life. And you'll slowly discover that your mind is being purified from so many of the distractions that fill our lives. You'll discover how amazingly crowded your mind is with all the cares and interests and anxieties and impressions of this world and how that stuff just crowds Jesus out so that you think about him in the morning, maybe if you say some prayers and you think about him on Sunday when somebody's talking to you and telling you to think about him, but you tend to forget as you go about the busyness of life. Now, what I want to do now is shift gears and to point out Five spiritual disciplines that flow out of the temptation of Christ. That the church has over centuries, in its great wisdom, said to us, if you'll practice this, it'll make a real change in your life. Number one, practice repentance. Practice it. Practice repentance. Alexander Schmiemann, he's one of the most important theologians of the Russian Orthodox Church in the 20th century. He said, repentance is the beginning of a truly Christian life and it's the condition of the truly Christian life. Repentance. It is the beginning and the condition of a truly Christian life. But here's the irony. In the rush of our daily living, we don't have time to think about repentance. See, repentance takes space. It takes quietness or a catastrophe. I'd much rather encounter it on the front end of a catastrophe, right? All of us know people that they've made a mistake that is, it's too late. They can't repair the damage. All they can do is repent and move on. But there's a form of repentance that you and I can practice on a daily basis that if we will give ourselves to it, It will change us. I love what Shmeeman calls Lent. He calls it the school of repentance to which every Christian must go every year in order to deepen his faith and to reevaluate and to change his life. Now, some ways you can practice repentance. Every week when we gather for worship, we're going to hear the Ten Commandments read. And we're going to cry out, Lord, have mercy. And then we're going to call, we'll be called as a church here in a few minutes into this silent space where your job is to look over your life in the presence of the Lord. If there is sin to say to him, I am sorry. Another thing I would encourage you to do for the season of Lent. Practice daily repentance, set aside time Every day to be quiet and still turn off the music, turn off the radio, the TV, don't read a book, shut everything down and to sit still. To ask God to show you if there's any sin in your heart. And then to just click back in your mind over the past 24 hours. And if you hit upon a sin, tell God you're sorry. And repent. Look, that's going to take work on your part. 
It's going to take work just like running or exercising, just like any other discipline takes work. And I'm saying, if you would do this for the season of Lent, you will be changed. But it'll be just like running and exercising. It will not happen immediately. Secondly, read the Bible every day. Read the Bible. Remember, look at Lent through the prism of Jesus' temptation. Every time Christ is tempted, his gut response is Scripture. If Jesus Christ, God himself, if it was his memorization of Scripture that was his quick response to temptation, that's a dang good model. It's a model. How did Jesus respond to temptation? Scripture flowed out of him. The problem with a lot of us is that when we're pushed with temptation, something else flows out of us. How do you get Scripture to flow out? The same way you get water to flow out of a sponge. You saturate the sponge with it, and when you push on that sponge... If there's water in it, water comes out. If there's blood in it, blood comes out. If there's tea in it, tea comes out. Whatever comes out when you're pushed on with temptation, that's what's saturating your life. And for Jesus, with Scripture, copy him. Be a copycat. Read Scripture. Now look, in the back of your worship guide is a handy-dandy little Linton Scripture guide. Scripture passages for every day. This comes from the Revised Common Lectionary, which is... Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, a whole bunch of varieties of Christians around the world got together and came up with a way of reading the Bible through so that they all read the same passages every day over a three-year period. So one of the neat things about this is if you do this scripture reading plan, you're going to be doing what millions and millions, more than a billion Catholics in this world follow this. This is the most universal scripture reading plan there is. It started, obviously, on Wednesday. Don't try to catch up. The goal of this is not to be some sort of, you know, anal perfectionist that tries to tick off every box. The goal of this is for you to sit in Scripture on a daily basis. So don't, don't try to play catch-up stuff. Just read Scripture. Let me just, some practical things encourage you. Uh, the best way to do any kind of discipline is to do it at the same time, same place every day. Here's what I'm doing for my scripture reading. I've made a commitment that for Lent, the first thing I read in the morning will be the Bible. I'll read my scripture before I check email, before I do any other kind of reading. It's going to be the first thing I do. And I've also made a commitment that the last thing I do at night before I go to sleep is I'm going to read the evening passage. Uh, Anselm said, let your head fall to sleep on a page of holy writ. And what he meant is, The last thing in your mind before you go to sleep, let it be Scripture. So let me encourage you, set a Lenten discipline to read Scripture. That's the way I'm doing it. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. You you figure out your own way, but you've got to do it in a disciplined way. Number three, fast. Again, let's go back uh, to Shmeeman. He's so helpful here. Let me, before I give this really interesting quote from Shmeeman. Let me say, again, this flows out of Jesus' temptation. What was he doing in the wilderness? He was fasting. Why? 
because he knew that that was a unique way to have a deeper intimacy with God. Now, if Jesus did that, copy him. Great model. Not just Jesus, but Christians for centuries have done it themselves and said it works. You have the weight of history bearing witness to you that it works. It will bring you into a deeper place with God. Now, what is fasting? Uh, Shmeeman says, there is no Lent without fasting, and fasting really only means one thing. You're hungry. That's what it means. It means to be hungry. So here's some practical ways to do that. For the 40 days of Lent, well, you're already off the hook for some of them, the ones that pass. Your goal needs to be to find a way so that you have a constant state of a low-grade hunger. That's the goal. Some people give up caffeine. Matt and Miner and I were talking, and he was describing how giving up caffeine is more than a low-grade you know, impact on his day. Find something that you can give up. I know some guys in our church are giving up snacking in between meals. Um, I know that some of my church have given up eating during daylight hours. You find a way that is sustainable for you. Take baby steps. And then on Sundays, you receive it back from the Lord with joy. Now, not all parts of the Christian church do it this way, but a lot of them do. They do not. They receive their fasting item back on Sunday because why? Sunday's mini Easter. Nothing can trump the triumph of Sunday. So, on, you know, so like I'm giving up caffeine. So on Sunday, I have chocolate and coffee and Coke and whatever other caffeine I can find, you know, at my disposal. And as I'm as I'm mainlining this stuff, I know that it's a gift from the Lord. See, bread is not a bad thing, right? Now, remember, like Jesus, if it is true fasting, it will lead to temptation. If you heard carefully what Alan read, he was led by the spirit into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and he was hungry and then Satan came to him. If it is true fasting, it will lead to temptation, to weakness, to doubt, to irritation, to orneriness. In other words, fasting will be a fight and you will fail because you're not Jesus. You will fail. Not just once, you'll probably fail many times. But you cannot make progress in the Christian life without the bitter experience of failure. You can't. Too many people start out Lent fasting with enthusiasm, but then as soon as they fail that first time, they hang it all up. You're on the edge of experiencing God in fresh ways when you start over. And you start over again and you don't give up no matter how many times you fail. And sooner or later, you will experience real spiritual fruit. The goal of this thing is not for you to become some perfectionist. Remember what Lent is. It is the long, slow, prodding journey. Here's a great piece of advice, again from Schneeman. Let your fasting be limited, humble, but consistent and serious. That's discipline. Because you see, it's taken you 10 years, 20 years, some person in the room almost 60 years, to develop the character you have. 
And your character is changed. Through long, slow, plodding spiritual disciplines. Number four, a fourth spiritual discipline, pray. Here, look, all the religions fast. Fasting is meaningless unless you complement it with prayer. It is not a Christian thing unless you complement it. We see this with Jesus in the wilderness. Here's the beautiful thing about fasting in Jesus in the wilderness. It's this perfect complement of the body and the soul. It's physical denial of food and simultaneous deep engagement of the spirit with God. It's letting the hunger pains push you into the spiritual awareness. That's our problem. We forget about the spiritual reality. That's how I started this whole thing. We forget that there is a spiritual reality that we can't see and feel and taste and touch that Jesus actually affected. And we forget about that. So Lent is the time where we use these physical bodies to push us back so that every time you have that hunger pain, that low-grade pain, and you know, unless you're some giant of spiritual disciplines, there are people who've eaten no food for all 40 days, but it's not necessary to do that. You find some type of, some type of eating or drinking that denying it will provoke in you a physical response that you then train yourself to go to the Lord in prayer. Physical fasting is not a Christian discipline unless you accompany it with prayer. For some of you, maybe you need to set a goal that you're going to pray 10 minutes a day when you're sitting still with no distractions and you're focused on God. That'd be a great discipline for some of you. Just 10 minutes a day. You take the Lord's Prayer and go through each line and turn each line into a prayer. There's an old technique where you use A-C-T-S, Acts. A, you adore God for a couple of minutes. Just praise him for how wonderful he is. See, you confess your sins for a couple of minutes, however long it takes you. T, you thank God for forgiving you of your sins or for something he's done great. And S, supplication, you ask God for the things you need. Now, this is a little mnemonic device that I learned when I was a kid. But for the last couple of months, I've re re-engaged with it and I found out, wow, that was really good. It's, it's given me structure so that I can, I've, you know, set apart. I'm going to pray a certain amount of minutes a day as a discipline. Now you do all this other kind of praying, but this is a discipline. I encourage you to find a way to discipline your prayer life. Number five, find a way to create the atmosphere of Lent in your house, in your home. Here's the reason why we are all weak. And we need external reminders, symbols, signs of the season of Lent. You don't have to do this for Christmas because our culture gives it to us for Christmas. Our culture reminds us it's Christmas because it plays into our culture's agenda of making money, of running the economy. You know why our culture doesn't advertise Lent? <laughs> you know why? It will not work in our our our. Culture is built on our economy. Lent is the grinding to a halt of the economy. So you have to put those symbols in your life. You've got to think about Christmas. It's the incessant Christmas music. It's all of these, you know, symbolic, saccharine, sickening, sentimentalized images that are constantly. Do that in your house. Find a way to create a culture of Lent in your house. 
into a climate of Lent. Now, there's lots of ways lots of different people have done this. Some, some people I know in our church reduce TV. They cut out TV for Lent. Is TV bad? No, but it's a way of programming into the climate of the home. Oh, we're on a different season. Oh, this is different than normal. I mean, think about here again, Jesus in the wilderness. He's our model. What did he do? It says he withdrew into the wilderness. He changed his pattern of life. He simplified. He cut out all of these worldly distractions. So maybe for some of you, for the season of Lent, you maybe you don't cut it all out, but you, to some degree, you reduce TV and music and candy, mind candy kind of magazines. Why? So you can have these symbols because you're weak. You're going to forget. And then fill that space with something. I know some people that for Lent, they read Tolstoy. You know, they find serious books to read. Why? Because part of Lent is trying to get down to the bottom of your humanity. And Tolstoy and Dostoevsky can do that as good as anybody there is. I, I, I can never get through crime and punishment. I don't like his humanity or mine, and so I quit. But what I'm saying is find a way to create the climate, the atmosphere of Lent. Now, I'll conclude with this. When a person goes on a journey, he's got to know where he's going. The season of Lent, it began last Wednesday, and it's a journey, and its destination is Easter. And it's, in, it's very important that you conceive of Lent as a spiritual and a physical journey. And the purpose of the Lenten journey is to go from one spiritual state where you're constantly forgetting about God, where you're constantly overcome by the busyness of this world, into another spiritual state where you're walking with a deep, omnipresent awareness of reality. That God has changed things. That his kingdom is here. That he is near. But when we forget this, and we see Lent as only a season, that we fulfill some sort of religious obligation. We get ashes put on our forehead, or a negative season. Everybody's like, what are you giving up for Lent? Think about what that means. It means that you're almost entirely conceiving of Lent within the negative. But that's not what it is. Lent is a journey to a very positive place. And all of those disciplines are means to an end. But when we reduce Lent to the giving up. Now, if you try to do Lent, there is no Lent without fasting. If you try to do it without those things, you're playing games. You are denying centuries of wisdom and you're not smarter than centuries. You're not. Don't think you are. Be humble. But to reduce Lent to that is to forget that it's a means to an end. It's a means to the end of arriving at Easter with hearts that are open. That all of a sudden the tenor and the timbre of the music changes and your heart leaps for joy. When Robert hits the first chords and we declare together that Christ is risen. Now, these spiritual disciplines, they will help you get there. This is Lent. May we make our way to Easter with hearts alive 
Christ. Let's pray.